It's amazing to me, as far as I know, there has never been a monument built to honor a critic. I've seen monuments and various things for military heroes and politicians and artists and all kinds of people, but I don't know of any monument that I know of that's built to, to commemorate, to honor a critic. But there seems to be plenty of people vying for a monument. There are plenty of people who try to play the role of critic. Somebody has said, if you don't want to be criticized, here's your advice for the evening, if you don't want to be criticized, don't say anything, don't do anything, and don't be anything. And you won't receive any criticism. Well, I'm thinking, I'm not sure about that. You probably will get criticism for not saying anything, or being anything, or doing anything. Our Lord said a lot. Our Lord did a lot. Our Lord is a lot. When He was here on the earth, and even now, He is Lord. And He was criticized. He was criticized over and over and over again. And usually He was criticized by people who were religious people. The name Pharisees pops up every once in a while. And they have something to say to Him that, or about Him that's not very complimentary. One of those times, if you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at this, and we're going to be kind of jumping around in the Bible a little bit, so I hope you have it open, and I hope you have it handy where you can kind of follow along with me. Look at Matthew chapter 9. While you're turning there, let me ask you this question. How would you like to be the one who planned a dinner at your house, or a banquet, or just a social gathering of some kind, And somebody who's not even involved criticized you for your guest list. How would you like that? You might be tempted to say, it's none of your business. I invite who I want to invite to my house. Okay, put a shoe on the other foot, or at least another foot. How would you like to be one of the ones invited? There's nothing immoral going on there. It's just dinner, a banquet, somebody's house. And now you're being criticized because you're there, and you're there with those kinds of people. How would you like that? Well, I wouldn't like that too much. That's what's going on in Matthew chapter 9. Are you there with me yet? Matthew chapter 9, starting with verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, this is the English Standard Translation, he saw a man called Matthew, and we're going to try to supplement this with Mark and Luke's account. The synoptics, all three of them have some information about this. We learn from the other two that his name is also Levi. We learn his, he's the son of Alphaeus, and so we, it's kind of fleshed out who this, who this fellow is. He's sitting in a tax booth, and he, Jesus, said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, whoa, wait a minute, Where do, how do we get from Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom to in the house? The other Gospels inform us that Levi had a banquet. He organized a dinner, and he invited people to come and be there, and so Jesus was one of the guests. 
who reclines at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, how many times have you read a passage? Tons of times, and for the first time you've noticed something you hadn't noticed before. That happened to me today. I, I prepared this material some time ago. It may not show, but I prepared the material some time ago. And I was reading this next verse, and I thought, I can't believe I never have noticed that before. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Have you ever noticed? Let's get real about this, okay? Have you ever noticed many times when somebody has something against you, they don't come to you? They go to somebody else? You ever notice that? The problem's with Jesus. What are they doing talking to the disciples? Why does your teacher eat with these kinds of... Why don't they ask Jesus? Why don't you ask me? If you've got a problem with me, why talk to the people you run around with or people I run around with or anybody you can get to, to bend their ear to your gossip? Why don't you talk to me about the problem you have? But they didn't. They went to the disciples and all three Gospels say that. But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said... Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came... That's our theme this week. Why did He come? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I don't know about you, but that last phrase... That last statement, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, plays with my brain a little bit. And I'll tell you why it plays with my brain in just a minute after we chase down another passage or two, because I like that phrase in there about mercy and not sacrifice. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Keep a finger in Matthew and flip back, me, back with me to the book of Hosea. We're on page 1231 if you've got the right Bible. I don't know what your Bible has, but it's 1231 in my Bible. Hosea is sometimes called the, the death prophet of Israel. He prophesied in the latter days of the nation of Israel. and He's the one who was told to marry a woman with a very unsavory background and reputation, and his love for her parallels the love of Jesus, or of God rather, for the nation of Israel. Her unfaithfulness paralleled the unfaithfulness of Israel toward God. In Hosea chapter 6, it begins with a plea to come and return to the Lord. And then look at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love, the ESV says, or mercy in the footnote, and not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You keep reading. These people are supposed to be God's people, but they are transgressing the covenant, verse 7. They've dealt faithlessly or treacherously with me, also verse 7. He uses words like evildoers, robbers, 
talks about murder, talks about villainy, talks about whoredom. All these things being practiced by people who are supposed to be God's people. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Let's put all this together in another passage. Go back to the New Testament with with me. Go to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, we're being criticized again. Our Lord is being criticized again. This is the account, Matthew chapter 12, starting with verse 1, where he and his disciples were going through a grain field on, here's the key, they're going through the grain field on the Sabbath day. What are you supposed to do on a Sabbath day? Nothing. You're not supposed to work, right? It's supposed to be like we talked about in one of the lessons yesterday. It's supposed to be a day of rest. And Jesus, in many respects, is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Well, they're hungry. And so they pluck some grain. And according to one of the other Gospels, they also kind of thresh the grain according to the Old Testament law or the people's interpretation of the Old Testament law. They kind of rub it together so they can, they can eat this grain. And they had, violated, they had violated these religious leaders' ideas about the law in two ways. They harvested and they also threshed. Just plucking grain and putting it in their hands and rubbing it, they had violated what the Jews thought the Old Testament law was all about. And so again, we've got some criticism. Pharisees saw it. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the, pre- bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? You see, Jesus taught situation ethics. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. What he's saying is, Why are you critical of my disciples when you're not critical of David? That's what he's saying. Or, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Did the priests just sit around? No. The priests, in order to do what God wanted them to do, had to be very busy on the Sabbath. So you guys are being inconsistent. I'll tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you've known what this means, I desire, here it is, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, and the concept of I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and in Hosea it's tied with the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I think we're making a case here to help us to understand something that's important. And something is hard for me to figure out sometimes and hard for us to figure out because who are these righteous people that Jesus that Jesus says He didn't come to call? We sing a song that says the gospel is for all. The Great Commission, all three accounts of the Great Commission seems to be pretty inclusive to me, very universal to me. 
I didn't come to call righteous people. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I think I read somewhere, like in Romans 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. Have you read that, Brother Harold? Yeah, I read that. So who are these righteous people? If nobody's righteous, <laughs> I'm getting confused, aren't you? That Jesus didn't come to, to call. Look at Habakkuk. Go back to the Old Testament with me. We're flopping back and forth. I understand that. Habakkuk talks about some things that he sees in a vision. And in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, he talks about people who are proud. The English Standard Version says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But... The righteous shall live by his faith. I think that extra word, the word I tried to emphasize, may be a real key to what we're trying to talk about. You see, Jesus talked about that again, about the righteous living by faith. And he quotes that passage in the book of Habakkuk, but he just says the righteous will live by his faith, Habakkuk says. Or the Holy Spirit says through Habakkuk. All right, preacher. Are you trying to tell me that we need to cut this meeting off right here on Monday night because you believe there is no system of faith that people need to practice today? I'm not saying that at all. Not at all. I still have Jude verse 3 in my Bible that says that I am and you are and we are to contend earnestly for the faith. Not just faith. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We live in a pluralistic society in a lot of ways, and in some ways that's good. But in some ways it's not so good. There's no such thing anymore as absolute truth. There's no such thing as people believing that there is something called the faith. You'll hear people talking about my faith and your faith and their faith and our faith and all that sort of thing. Jude says there's something called the faith. But we also need to be impressed with the fact that the Bible talks about the fact that I'm not a Christian just because of the faith. I'm a Christian because of my individual, personal faith. You're all the children of God, but not by the faith. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. Now, some of our religious friends stop at that verse, but we don't like to stop at that verse, and you shouldn't stop at that verse, because Paul says, for as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And he talks about the fact there's all these divisions torn down, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. It's His faith, my faith, your faith, that helps me to respond to the gospel 
and start practicing the faith. What we're talking about, I guess, is observation versus obedience. And I'm not talking about observation like I'm observing people to see if anybody goes to sleep. The auditorium class has permission to do that this evening because they fed me very well. I forgot to mention that as I began the lesson. Larry and his class, uh, there was a, a good meal and we enjoyed the fellowship. So if you ate too much and you go to sleep, just don't snore real loud, okay? And we'll, we'll get through this. I'm not using the word observation that way. What I'm talking about is observing, observing certain rites and rituals. It's not a matter of outward observance. It's a matter of obedience from the heart that helps a person become a Christian and stay a Christian. There are some people that we've already talked about. Jesus denounced those people probably more than any other religious group or any other group in the New Testament, and they were the ones who were religious. The key word we're looking at is righteous. Turn to Matthew 23 and verse 28. Let's start with verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Here they are. They're the critics. They're the ones that are always hammering Jesus and His disciples about something. Hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous. There's our word. You outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What were they messing up on? Go back to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe of dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These ought you to have done without neglecting the others. I'm always going to be grateful. As long as I preach, I'm going to be grateful to an old brother over in southern Illinois when I was first preaching. In the, it spelled like Vienna, but Adam called it Vienna, and he's right. It's Vienna, Illinois. I call it Sausage City, but they call it Vienna. And I tried to quote that verse one night. I may have done it a couple of times. And I ended that quotation by saying, These ought ye to have done the justice and mercy and faith, and leave the others undone. And the old brother came up to me and said, you might want to read that verse again, Jim. It says, these ought you to have done and not leave the others undone. The tithing of those very small herbs was important. How we worship in spirit and in truth is important. But so are those other things. You can't worship right and live wrong and be right. You can't worship wrong and live right and be right in the sight of God. It's all a matter of what's coming from within and how that demonstrates, how I demonstrate that in my obedience to the gospel. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 10. 
where the key word again is righteousness. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but God not according to knowledge. Look at the difference. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Could it be that Jesus is talking about people who in their own mind, in their own eyes, they are righteous, when in reality, they're not? There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. You know it probably better than I do. You can finish it, the Cliff's Notes version anyway, as I begin it. Two men went to the temple to pray. Now you know what that's all about, don't you? One a Pharisee, and the other what Matthew was. And what some of these guests were at Matthew's feast. Publicans, tax collectors. And you know how the Pharisee stood there very proudly? And basically tried to convince the Lord, you're lucky I'm on your side. I'm such a good guy. Here's what I do and here's what I don't do and you're very lucky to have me on your side. And the publican wouldn't even look up. He just smote himself on the breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever noticed what the lead-in is to that parable? My Bible says he spoke this parable unto certain who, watch this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, there's our word, and despised others. I got it all together. I show up every time the doors are open. I give a significant amount of my money when the plate's passed. I do this, and I don't do that. Look at that poor old guy over there. He is nothing like the Christian I am. And Jesus says, Jim, you had better read Luke 18 again and read the lead-in to Luke 18. The parable is all about people who trusted in themselves that they are righteous and despise others. I keep all the rules. I cross all the T's. I dot every I. I'm good to go. You may not be as good to go as you think you are. It seems to me that in that parable, I need to be concerned about awareness of who I am, what I am, who God is, and my responsibility to Him. It's not all about how great I am. It's how great He is. I need to be concerned about my attitude. I think I've read somewhere that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I say this tongue in cheek, but there's a little bit of a little bit of seriousness in this. I think I've known a few folks who can almost strut sitting down. You know some folks like that? They're just so proud. And it just kind of shows they 
They're proud of themselves. It's not mentioned in Luke 18, but when I'm aware of who I am and who God is, and I'm humble enough to admit it, Paul told those people on Mars Hill, God commands all men everywhere to repent. One more passage that I want to spend a little bit of time with. With some of the most frightening words I guess I've read in a long, long time. Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 15. Pharisees and scribes, here they are, they're critical again. They're trying to build their monument to be, criti- be great critics. Now the problem is, why do your disciples... See, here we are again. The problem is with the disciples and they're talking to Jesus. Talk to the person you've got the problem with. Anyway, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders... They don't wash their hands when they eat. They're not talking about sanitation kind of things. They're talking about traditions and Jewish washings and so on and so forth. And so Jesus deals with that. Disciples have a question or two about that. And Jesus says in verse 14, Let them alone. I don't want Jesus saying that about me. Just just leave him alone. Just leave him alone. It's almost like he's saying he's too far gone. They're too far gone. Not the last time something like that's going to be going to happen. Acts chapter 13. Paul and his company at a particular place, and they meet with the Jews, and they, they preach to the Jews, they discuss things with the Jews, and then they finally say. Okay, it was necessary for us to talk to you first, but since you've rejected it, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. You see, the people that Jesus came to call were those people who are not totally, spiritually, 100% blind. Because He says, leave them alone, let them alone. They are Blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind, they're both going to fall into the ditch. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about the fact that if our gospel is hid, it's hid to those who are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded. I don't think I'm talking to too many people like that this evening. But I'm just wondering... I'm wondering if I'm talking to somebody that might be described in words like this. Maybe I'm looking at one in the morning when I try to make myself look halfway presentable. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes about those things that we call the Christian graces. And we're not going to talk about any of them in in detail. I'm not even going to mention all of them. But look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things... He's talking to me. Um, Well, I know he's talking to me because in verse 1, 
the letter is addressed to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He's talking to Christians. not talking to people who are doing something ungodly this evening. He's talking to me. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. That's a problem. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about his conversion, talks about his former life and his present life as a Christian. And in verse 6, he uses that word righteousness or righteous. According to the law, I had it all together. I was righteous. But read verses 7 and following, you'll find out he didn't. He got more than his eyesight, physical eyesight. He got spiritual insight when he became a Christian. I'm wondering if we haven't spent too much time this evening on kind of the negative, the righteous who they think they are, who they really are, what they think they are. And I wonder if, as we end this lesson, if we don't need to emphasize the other part of the formula. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 15, there are, depending on how you read Luke 15, they are the three parables or one extended parable. My Bible says he spake a parable. And he starts talking about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the older brother. So maybe it's all one long extended parable. And you read this expression. There will be joy in the presence or in the face of or before the angels over one sinner that repents. The other time, it's there will be joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Now, we got at least two other preachers here this evening, and they can straighten me out on this because I'm not sure what that means about joy in the face of or in front of or in the presence of the angels. Does that mean the angels are rejoicing? And or could it mean that our Lord in the presence of the angels is rejoicing over you, me? One sinner who recognizes I'll never get to heaven on my own righteousness. It's all about me being faithful to the Lord because of His mercy extended to me and my simple obedience to the gospel. I know this. I don't know you as well as other people here know you. But if you are in that condition where you need to become a Christian, need to be baptized into Christ, or if you're wearing the name Christian, but you're not wearing the name Christian like a Christian ought to wear the name Christian, and you decide to come back to the Lord... I know there will be some people 
who will hug your neck. I don't know if congratulate's the right word or not. But they would love to see you either become a Christian or return to the Lord. And since I'm the one standing here, people who've heard me preach, especially at Paducah, can verify this. I will guarantee you, you will not walk down this whole aisle by yourself. I'll meet you, and we'll walk down this aisle together. Why don't we do that right now as we stand and sing the song of encouragement?